Listener Production. My biggest concern is that I'll get COVID in the first couple of weeks of school and then have to isolate for the seven days. So that's Alana. She's a teacher in Victoria. Those first few weeks of school, they're really important to setting up routine and um, structure with the kids. So yeah, that's what I'm more so concerned about rather than even getting COVID. It's more that I'll miss um, some really important parts of the term and getting to know my kids in those first few weeks or even the first term of school. So Alana's one of thousands of teachers heading back to the classroom this week with Omicron still spreading. As you can hear, there's a lot of trepidation. I mean, the classrooms are a really, I guess, challenging tension point for living with COVID. You've got dozens of people in one room, huge numbers of unvaccinated kids who will be mixing with kids from different households, loads of transport creating potential contact points, and a workforce that was already stretched in many places before the pandemic, plus As you heard there, the potential for massive disruptions. So in this episode of The Briefing, we're asking, are we throwing teachers under the bus? You're going to hear more from the teachers about their fears in this episode of The Briefing. First, today's headlines with Katrina Blowers. It is Monday, the 31st of January. The greatest comeback of his career, Rafael Nadal has won a five-set thriller to take the Australian Open incredible match. So he was two sets down against the world number two, Daniil Medvedev, who is just an absolute machine. But then after five (laughs) hours and 24 minutes, he came out on top. I went to bed after the first set kind of demoralised. I would have stayed up, but we had to get up at four to do the briefing. But wow, what a turnaround. But also, can you imagine playing a match for that long and having to be in that mindset for that long? So this win now means Nadal has 21 major titles to his name. This is important because it's one more than Novak Djokovic and Roger Federer, making him, when we crunch the numbers, the greatest men's Grand Slam champion of all time. Yeah, Nadal had lost his past four attempts at the Australian Open, losing to Djokovic twice as well as to Federer. I guess you've got to wonder what it was like for Djokovic watching this match if he was watching oh. it all. <laughs> Nadal says it was the most emotional match of his career because he wasn't sure he'd recover in time from a chronic foot injury. It's just amazing. No, be, being honest, uh, one month and a half ago, I didn't know if I will be able to be back on the tour playing tennis again. And today I am here in front of all of you having this trophy with me. And you really don't know how, how much I fight it to be here. Oh, he's so amazing. And um, yeah, you're in Brisbane, Katrina. So the Ash Barty atmosphere must be amazing there. Yeah. <laughs> it, it was so huge. Huge. It was um, played in pubs and clubs pretty much everywhere. Everyone was watching it. Um, she's considered to be just a Queensland hero. They're even considering putting a statue of Ash Barty up in her hometown of Ipswich. The Queensland Premier and the local Ipswich Mayor are right behind it. They've just uh, got to get Ash Barty on board now, who is the most humble human. So I don't know how she would feel about having a statue of herself <laughs> out in the world. I think a statue right here would go down a treat. So let's go for a statue here, and I think Ash Barty deserves it. If she wants it, it's totally up to her. And today's news poll shows support for the coalition, the government, is at its worst level since the leadership spill in 2018. The two-party preferred figure now has Labor at 56 to the coalition's 44. You've got to imagine a few people sweating bullets over this one right now. If these poll numbers were replicated at a general election today, the coalition could lose up to 25 seats, putting Labor in government with a really big majority. 
Yeah, and the news poll also puts Anthony Albanese up two points in the preferred Prime Minister stake. Scott Morrison's still ahead there. So it's not looking good for the coalition, but you do have to remember um, that in 2018, yes, they were at a similar position, but Morrison was able to turn that around by Mm. the election um, less than 12 months later. It was in May the following year. So he has less time now because we're already almost into February. So we're looking at sort of four months until May when we're expected to go to the election. So a tougher job this time around, but there could be another miracle. There could be. And who knows, with uh, the news cycle changing so, so quickly at the moment, what those key election uh, decisions are going to be for voters when they go to the polls in just a couple of months' time. That's exactly right, because in December, things were looking great, right? Then Omicron Mm -hmm. hit, and then suddenly it's all about the rat tests and Scott Morrison not giving them out for free. And he becomes, I guess, the the punching bag for the frustration so many people have been feeling. Absolutely. So, uh, yeah, it's still anyone's race, I think, at this stage. And McDonald's is facing a $100 million compensation case. Um, This is for allegedly not giving workers 10-minute breaks across 90 of its restaurants. It is the largest action of its type in the history of the federal court. It could impact thousands of current and actually former employees as well. So the Fast Food Workers Union, the SDA, alleges that along with concealing break entitlements, some McDonald's franchises told staff they could have a free soft drink instead of a rest break. (laughs) There you go. Have some sugar instead of a rest. Um, And that they didn't receive breaks because they are allowed to go to the bathroom or have a drink whenever they wanted. McDonald's has denied any wrongdoing. Prince Harry and Meghan have chipped in to condemn Spotify over hosting podcasts like Joe Rogan's that spreads COVID misinformation, saying they have relayed their concerns to the company, but they haven't actually pulled out of their Spotify content deal, which is worth $35 million. So they haven't put their money where their mouth is? No, mm, no. They've just um, thrown mud from the sidelines. <laughs> so to recap, Neil Young issued that ultimatum last week, his music or Joe Rogan's podcast. Spotify chose Rogan, so his music was off. And then on Saturday, Joni Mitchell joined Neil Young. These 70 rockers are really standing up for their belief. She pulled her music as well. Good on him. Um, Some people have pointed out to me that this could actually impact a lot of playlists and soundtracks. So while you think, oh yeah, people don't really listen as much to Joni Mitchell's music anymore, it could have wider ramifications. Uh, Spotify has stated it aims to balance both safety for listeners and freedom for creators and had removed more than 20,000 podcast episodes related to COVID since the start of the pandemic. Just not any that uh, have been done by Joe Rogan. Bit of a confession from me. I've been getting into a bit of Joni Mitchell lately because because my favourite movie, Love Actually, has the song Both Sides in it. You know, that really sad scene where the wife realises the husband's been buying the necklace for the the lady at work. Why have you been listening to this? (laughs) It's just a beautiful song. And then, as you said, it started off, I did a playlist based on Both Sides by Joni Mitchell over Christmas. Okay, so this is going to have a big impact on you, Tom Tilly. It's going to destroy one of my best playlists over summer. A bit melancholy, you know, I was feeling a bit emotional at times, but there we go. (laughs) And Hillsong founder Brian Houston is stepping down as leader of the church while he fights a court battle. Yeah, so this is a huge story. Uh, He's defending a criminal charge that he allegedly covered up his father's child sexual abuse. Um, His father died in 2004. And Houston said in his statement that this decision is driven by his emotional well-being. 
Um, he'll be fighting these charges in court and he said the case could last for most of this year. All right, Katrina, we'll catch you tomorrow. Jan Fran's about to join me as we ask whether teachers are being thrown under the bus. So, Jan Fran, this is a massive week for teachers and students, isn't it? Mate, don't I know it. My mum is a primary school teacher. She is back at school this week. She's in her 60s. She has a respiratory illness. And I must say, I'm a little bit worried because school in, in most states across the country, uh, going back this week, I imagine there'd be a number of people in my position. In fact, we did a shout out on the briefing Instagram to see how teachers are feeling. Um, we know there's a lot of teachers in the briefing audience. We love you guys. Here's Joel. He's a briefing listener and a teacher in Newcastle. Feeling excited about going back to school, um, just to see the kids and check in and see how they're they're all travelling. Uh, one frustration I think will be just teaching with a mask on. You, know, you have to strain quite a bit, um, meaning that you end up with quite a sore throat at the end of the day. Um, but yeah, hopefully this year can be not like the past two, and we can get out on some excursions and things for the kids. So yeah, we heard that concern about masks from quite a few teachers. Here's Georgia. That's not her real name. Here's what she's worried about. She's also a teacher in New South Wales. We already have a shortage of staff in the state and casuals are getting rarer too in many schools. On top of that, if we are expected to take two rat tests a week, surely that means asymptomatic people will need to go into isolation. While I understand that this is important to stop people from getting COVID, at the same time, it's going to lead to many problems with staff shortages um, in schools. So that's my main concern going back to school. Another big challenge is rapid antigen tests. There are various testing plans around the country. They differ from state to state. In New South Wales and Victoria, for example, it's expected that students will have two tests per week. Queensland, though, a little bit slower to land their plan. And of course, just like the rest of the country, there are big concerns about supplies. Yeah, masks will be mandatory, although not for all ages in some states. There's also work being done on ventilation inside classrooms and creating more outdoor teaching space. So the real question here is, have these education departments in the various states got the risk of COVID balanced against, I guess, the returns of bringing kids off the screens and back into social contact in classrooms. Yeah, Karina Haythorpe is with us now and she is the federal president of the Australian Education Union. Karina, thanks for joining us. Are we throwing teachers under the bus or do you think the education departments are doing enough to manage the return to the classroom safely? Well, it's a very interesting time and, of course, our members are feeling anxious about returning to school. The reality is we wanted a national framework. We don't have that, so it really has been left to states and territories to get the plans in place to make sure that schools are safe when we all return. So different states have different responses. Which state has the worst response, do you think? Well, I think that's a good question. We've got a couple of states out there at this stage that we're still waiting to see their plans in terms of Queensland. And my home state in South Australia, members were actually balloted for industrial action because there were significant concerns about the failure of the state government to deliver the safety mechanisms that we know are so important for back to school. So what do you reckon, Karina? Do you reckon that governments are doing enough to manage the return to the classroom properly? 
Well, I think in some instances, uh, certainly there have been some very good negotiations about what needs to happen in terms of returning to school. We want this to be a time where people feel reassured that mechanisms are in place. So we do have, for example, in Victoria and New South Wales, the rollout of surveillance testing and access to rapid antigen testing. And it's going to be a watch and see brief over the next few weeks to see how that process works. So is what they're doing in New South Wales and Victoria, which is two rapid tests per week for each student, is that what you'd like to see in all states? We've seen that surveillance testing overseas has certainly helped in terms of the safety for staff. And I think that this would have been an important mechanism for a national cabinet decision around what we could have delivered. We wanted clear guidelines. We wanted priority access to rat tests and We also wanted identification of funding for infrastructure such as the ventilation that our schools need to be safe. Karina, what's the biggest concern here for teachers, do you reckon? What could happen if the return to school, for example, sparks another big wave of infection in our classrooms? I think there are a couple of concerns. We may face multiple scenarios in terms of a wave of infections. The first concern is making sure that school is a safe environment with the best conditions possible for staff and students in terms of risk mitigation. And that means having those things in place such as air filters, ventilation and surveillance testing. The second concern is the possibility of staff shortages as we see an increase in infections in schools. And we are worried that um, we may not have enough people to cover classes in terms of duty of care. And and in that instance, governments are going to have to step up and provide additional teachers. And what if they can't find them and then you have to have more kids in classrooms per teacher, which could increase the risk of transmission? Do you then get to a point where you're like, well, we're going to have to send some of the kids home? Well, we would expect that in terms of more children in the classroom, there are currently regulations that govern how many students you should have in a classroom. Mm. And it may be the case that we have to have short-term closures. That's one of the scenarios that we face. Well, not many people would want that, I imagine. What about the plan of bringing back retired teachers? Is that a good solution given that some of those people are older and potentially more vulnerable? Well, we've heard from some of the retired teachers in our networks that um, they are concerned about whether they would have increased exposure due to their vulnerability in terms of age. We believe that for those teachers who are registered, if they wish to return to teach, then the mechanisms should be in place to ensure that they can do that safely. Retired teachers are one uh, possibility, but also there are a number of people who are casually employed who could actually step up and be given a position. Karina, rapid tests are part of the solution here. Obviously, each state is different in how they want to administer it. In New South Wales and Victoria, there's two tests encouraged per week. What are some of the challenges there and what does the union see as the best way to handle testing? With surveillance testing uh, rolling out, the biggest challenge will be supply. I mean, at this stage, we know that we've got supply at least for the first couple of weeks of the school year. And the second challenge will be uh, parental uptake because this is a test that should be conducted at home. Now, we would hope that most parents and family members would be supportive of this because they also want their children to be returning to -to face-to-face teaching and to be doing that in a safe manner. On that point, I mean, there's a number of sort of glaring issues that I can see already with that. One, is it perhaps too onerous to expect parents to test their kids twice a week? And two, they're also going to have access issues to rat tests. What happens if they can't access rat tests in time? 
Well, I think both of those are good issues. The return to school period is not without risk. We are expecting to see some increased rates of infection. I think the community understands that. We need to prepare for whatever scenario might present it. Governments have got a responsibility to make sure that we've got supply in terms of rapid antigen testing. And I think broadly what I've heard from parent networks is that they are prepared to undertake the surveillance testing. Obviously, social contact is so important for kids and they've missed out on so much of that in the last two years in some states. Remote learning is also a nightmare for parents. So how bad would it have to get for you to start calling for a return to remote learning? What we want to see is a face-to-face teaching, but it needs to be done in a safe way for staff and for students. And so that means that we need better risk mitigation strategies to be delivered for our students and their learning. The reality is we may face a situation where we have to go back to remote periods of learning. We've done that before. We know what needs to happen in terms of our members. But what we would hope is that governments actually put things in place so that we don't have to do that. I mean, Corinna, is is there a sort of a, a blue sky scenario here for you? If you could tell us the top three things that you would like to be in place when teachers and students return back to school, what would they be? If you had a magic wand that you could wave, what would they be? If we had a magic wand that we could wave, uh, we would want additional resources to make sure that schools have got the infrastructure so that they can manage the social distancing requirements, the hygiene requirements, the ventilation uh, and any other public health measures that are needed. We would also want priority access to RAT and PCR tests and we would want a plan in place to manage staff shortages so that our schools can remain open for face-to-face teaching. Do you think governments are coming to the party on those three points? We were very disappointed. The National Cabinet response, we were expecting that the PM would actually put out a national framework that would give really clear guidelines for state and territories, but that didn't happen. So we're in the process now of negotiating at the state and territory level with the leadership of our union on behalf of our members to get things in place. And in some instances, those negotiations are going very well. And in others, such as in my home state in South Australia, it's been much more difficult to get the resources in place for staff and for students. That was Karina Haythorpe, who's the federal president of the Australian Education Union. And um, look, listening to her, Jan, it seemed like She was concerned about what was happening in some states and concerned that there wasn't a nationally coordinated plan, but she wasn't panicking and that it seems in some states um, they're more or less getting what they want. Yeah, there are still some outstanding questions and I think, again, just with this pandemic, you just... you. You can get an idea of how things will unfold. Of course you can. But I think until we're there and until schools really open up and teachers are back on the ground and and so are students, that's when we're really going to know what it's like being in those spaces. Mm, I guess the other little bit of good news is that case numbers in some states are actually dropping quite quickly. So things could look very different in a month's time. Fingers crossed. Tomorrow on The Briefing, when will it become easier to buy a new car? Listener.